Good evening. <coughs> this week we begin B'Sha'a Tova, a new Chumash, Chumash Shemos, the Chumash of Sefer HaGeula, Chumash HaGeula as it is called. Uh, but of course Parsha Shemos does not begin immediately with Geula. Uh, it describes how things uh, deteriorated and Shemos itself is, uh, largely deals with the, the difficult state of Golos that uh, the Jewish people descended into. And after we hear the names, so the very first thing we, we uh, discover is a new regime, and that is in Pasuk Ches, Perik Aleph, Pasuk Ches. Vayakam Melech Chadash al-Mitzrayim, a new king arose over Egypt, Asher lo yada es Yosef. He didn't know Yosef. <coughs> Rashi, as we know, cites two opinions as to whether this was actually a, a, a different king than the one before. Or, or maybe, as Rashi says, Melech Chadash, one opinion is Chadash Mamash, a new king. V'chad Amar, Shenizchad Shuk Zerosov. He had new decrees. And therefore, it's a new, it's a new national order. It's the same person, but everything is new. And on the words, Asher lo yada, who doesn't know Yosef, and Rashi, of course, responding to the obvious question, who doesn't know Yosef in Mitzrayim? <coughs> the answer is, whoever chooses not to know Yosef doesn't know Yosef. Asa atzmo ki'ilu lo yada. He made himself like he never knew Yosef, even though how can one erase uh, a historical fact and deny all the good that was done to the country by Yosef, the answer is, it's possible. If you're determined, you can do it without too much trouble at all, in fact. <coughs> and this becomes really part of the uh, anguish of the Gullus experience, that whatever uh, the Yosefs of the world have done for the host country can be forgotten in an instant, overnight. We're mindful of the comment of the Chizkuni on the opening pasuk of the uh, parsha. Ve'ele shemos bnei Yisrael haba'im mitzrayma. Haba'im is in the present tense, which means however long the Jewish people have been in, in Egypt, it's possible to look upon them and prevalent to look upon them as if as if they just arrived. They're just coming now. They may have arrived in the Mitzrayim on the Mayflower, but uh, as far as the indigenous population is concerned, uh, they may as well have just come from, from Ellis Island uh, just a few weeks ago. And this is the, the way that time works against uh, the Jewish people. In Golis, Asher lo yoda as Yosef, he doesn't want to know, then he doesn't know, and, and, and history is erased. Actually, Unculus says more than this. For so far, we've said, it's, it's blank. He doesn't remember anything. He doesn't remember who Yosef was or what he did. Unculus has a somewhat different inflection on these words. And on, on, when it says, which translates, uh, easy to translate, he does not fulfill the decrees 
of Yosef. And that's very interesting because we're not aware that Yosef made decrees. We know that he uh, organized the country and you can say, I don't recognize that. But what were the decrees that Yosef made that Paro doesn't fulfill? And interestingly, <coughs> if we look closer at the term that Rashi used for the new way of doing things, Chad Omar that Paro's decrees nishadshu. I think we understand what it means to say is that there were new decrees now. But nishadshu literally means renewed. Renewed means that something that used to exist, which, which fell into disuse, is brought back. That is lehit chadesh. If these were entirely new, decrees, a completely new way of dealing with the Jewish people or relating to them, that wouldn't be called lehit chadesh. That would be called lechadesh. That's new. So new is new. Renew is old. That's brought back. But what does all of this mean? And that is why the Be'er Yosef explains the meaning of unculus, and by extension um, Rashi's source, which is the Gemara in Sota of Nishad Shukzerosov. In fact, Yosef did promulgate one decree. He did enact a decree. Uh, we don't perhaps pay so much attention to it because we see it as a footnote in the story, but in the end of Parshas Vayigash, as the populace of Egypt is, uh, finds themselves without food, without resources, Yosef gives them food in return for which he acquires them as servants to Paro. They all belong to Paro. So say the Psukim in quite some detail, actually, in the end of Parshas Vayigash. That's Yosef's decree. Everything else is Yosef's plan for how to save the country. But Yosef's decree is that the, the, the population become servants to the crown. At the time, this was received with great favor by Paro. And why not? His entire nation had just become his servants. Just when things couldn't get any better for the emperor, they have. Not only are they his subjects, they are his servants, with whatever differences that makes. So at the time, this was done for the benefit of Paro and was greatly appreciated by Paro. But now things have changed. And now, Paro wishes to uh, have a new way of doing things and wishes to curry favor with his people. It may be a new king. It may be the same king looking to, to change things up. How does he do that? He now turns on Yosef. Because when he wishes to acquire the favor of the people, how will he do that? By giving them their freedom back. And that's called nishadashu. Things were renewed. In other words, they came to be the, the way that they once were. Initially, all of the Egyptian society was free, or as free as they, they could be. And then they became slaves. But Paro was mechadesh. He gave them their freedom back. Except wasn't that done for his benefit? Not anymore. Not with the current narrative. It was wrong. Even though it was done for him, it was wrong. But if it was wrong, who's to take the blame? 
Yosef is to take the blame. The facilitator, the enabler, and that's what Yosef was. He now becomes the criminal. He becomes the enemy because it was done for Paro, but as Paro wishes to turn it around, so he's able to turn the whole thing back on Yosef. And with that, the people are united with Paro once again. There may be other reasons why the people were upset with Paro, but if he can deflect the upset to Paro with upset to Yosef, to his Jewish uh, courtier, then that is a, that's a good path for him. And, and everyone is happy except for the Jewish people, of course. And this is the meaning of Unculus de lo Mekayim Gezeras Yosef. He announces, Yosef made a decree, conveniently forgetting that it was done for Paro's benefit. Yosef made this decree against you. He's the one that oppressed you. He's the one that, that uh, uh, deceived you. And now I am setting things right and we'll, we'll all be friends again. And he takes, the, he takes the brunt. And if I may say, it's a very prescient comment. If one could borrow the expression from the Gemara, in Psachim, Kama Yosef Ika Bashukha. How many Yosefs have there been throughout history that got caught in that uh, reversal? As the new regime is looking to exonerate itself of all evils, uh, it, find, it, 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 it turns on the one that, that was uh, in its service all of these times. Vahadvarim Yidduim. So these are, are, are some of the <coughs> um, themes as how Golas begins. And I'm not sure that it makes things any better for us, but it is helpful to know that these are not new occurrences. They, they are as old as, as Jewish history itself, in Golas, that is to say, which is not our final history, but it's certainly a great deal of our uh, temporal history. And so the Shibud begins, the subjugation begins. And there is a very profound discussion that takes place in the Beis HaLevi with regards to the Golas in Mitzrayim, the difficulties that we experienced in Mitzrayim. And he begins by noting, as we all know, that in fact the uh, damage that was done to the Jewish people and the persecution that they underwent was actually twofold in nature. Of course, there was the physical oppression uh, with everything that goes with that, which was bad enough. But at the same time, <coughs> there was also a, a spiritual toll that was taken on the people. Where do we see this? Well, there is a famous statement of the Arizal. I think it's even the, in the Zohar itself that the Jewish people had descended to the well-known 49th level of Tumor, which is about as low as one goes if one is ever expecting to come back. And moreover, Chazal famously say that when the sea, the Yamsuf, was to split before the Jewish people, the Satan comes and accuses them before Hashem and says, Halalu ovde avodazara, v'halalu ovde avodazara, why are you splitting on behalf of the Jewish people with the intent of then bringing the waters in on the Egyptians? These are idol worshippers, and these are idol worshippers. Until Hashem explains, so to speak, that it's not the same. The Egyptians are the instigators of idol worshippers. The Jewish people worship out of duress or whatever it will be. 
But this notion that there was Avodah Zorah going on, as, as um, unpleasant as it is to, to contemplate and to think about, <coughs> is actually explicit in the Navi. The Navi Yechezkel in Perak Kaf has a section devoted to prophecy that was given to the Jewish people in Egypt. The very first prophecy that we received in Egypt was not from Moshe. It was from Aaron, and it was about Avodah Zarah. And as the, as the Pasuk describes, Hashem says, get rid of your Avodah Zarah. And moreover, I mean, these are open sukkim. It says the Jewish people were, were, did not wish to do that. It, it was familiar to them. It was comfortable for them. It was uh, so on. <coughs> and thus, we have a very low behavioral level in spiritual terms of the Jewish people with all that they uh, kept up in terms of their identity, as, as we know, their names and, and their, their, their language, etc. But in terms of the, there was a great spiritual decline. And interestingly, according to the Medrash, and this is the Yalkut Shimoni, these two elements of damage, once again, physical and spiritual, are what were alluded to in the first two signs that Moshe was given at the burning bush. The first sign was his staff turned into a snake and then turned into a, back into a staff again. The second sign was that his hand became leprous and then became healed again. What is the significance of these signs? Says the Yalkut Shimoni, the, both of these signs are the reasons why the Egyptians are deserving of punishment because these are the two realms within they have inflicted damage on the Jewish people. Manochosh mamis, just like a snake kills, physically can kill a person, so too the Egyptians had uh, damaged and inflicted such, such great harm physically on the Jewish people. Like a snake can kill physically. And what about the hand that became leprous? That's tuma. Tzoraz is tome. It's impure. And just like mitzora mitame, so too the Egyptians were uh, defiled, the Jewish people. And probably the most important question to ask at this stage is whether both of these were conscious, programmatic, in terms of the goals of the Egyptians. In other words, there is no doubt that they sought to enslave the Jewish people and therefore politically and physically and, and, um, to, to, to contain them and to damage them. But the spiritual damage, that was a conscious thing or was it perhaps an unconscious byproduct? Spend enough time in Egypt and you'll, you'll end up at the 49th level of Tumah. That's life in Egypt. <coughs> but the Beis HaLevi argues that both of these were intentional on the part of the Egyptians. Not only did they intend to enslave the Jewish people, they intended to defile the Jewish people and to, to rid them of their spiritual qualities. Because as much as they were irked by the presence of the Jewish people politically, they were likewise put out by the spiritual Ideas represented by the Jewish people. That, that was also targeted by them. And moreover, the Beis Halevi goes so far as to say 
that not only was the spiritual damage a conscious goal of the Egyptians, it was the primary goal of the Egyptians. All of the enslavement was in order to obliterate the spiritual message of the Jewish people. And how do we see this? Because on the one hand, there are many statements of Chazal to the effect that the enslavement of the Jewish people wasn't really for utilitarian purposes. <clears throat> they had them build cities that would then collapse. They had people work in the areas which was not their expertise, which is a, it's a cause of frustration and breakdown. They had the men do the women's work, the women do the men's work. In those days, they were very different. And the goal, therefore, is not to get as much uh, output from the Jewish people as a workforce, but just to break them. Because if they break them emotionally, they will deteriorate spiritually. And in fact, there is a medrash, Rabbah, which adduces with regards to the subjugation in Egypt, the Posuk and Koheles. And every Posuk and Koheles, as we know, needs to be considered very carefully. The Posuk states, Kikol yamav machovim, talking about the human condition generally. Kol yamav machovim, all of his days are pain. Vekaas inyono. And his, his matter, his theme is kaas. And kaas in the, as much as I, I, we tend to translate kaas as anger, but kaas is often frustration uh, in, in the Navi. But the Medrash says both of these parts of the verse refer to the two-pronged assault of Egypt on the Jewish people. Number one, all their days were pain. They made their, their days physically difficult with the, with the crushing labor, etc. The kaas in Yano. What is kaas in Yano? The Chazal take kaas as anger. They wanted the Jewish people to anger Hashem with their acts. So you have ke'ev, physical pain, ka'as, angering Hashem through spiritual decline. It says the Beis Halevi, look at the difference between how the Pasuk rates these two as, as components. The days were full of pain, but what was the inyan? The kas inyano, the inyan. In other words, what was the matter all about? What was the goal? Maha inyan. It was kaas. It was uh, to cause them to, to anger Hashem with their deeds. And that shows us, you see, the Medrash is comparing, not only including both of them, not only comprising both of these elements, the physical and the spiritual, but also assessing them, which was prevalent and which was the inyan. What was it really all about. And the truth is, says the Beis Halevi, <coughs> you can see this in the, in the comment of the Yalkut that we mentioned before about the two signs, the staff becoming a snake and the hand becoming leprous. Why does the staff become a snake? Because a snake can kill. Physically, many animals can kill, but there's something distinct about the way that a snake kills, and it's referred to by the Gemara in Maseches Tanis on Daf Zayin. The Gemara portrays that in the future, all of the <coughs> animals of the jungle 
they will come to the snake and they will say to him, every other animal that kills benefits from its kill. Because it eats it. Ari and the, the lion mauls and the, and, and the, the, the wolf tears, but, but they get something from it. That's their, that's their prey. But you just kill and then you keep going. So what's in it for you? Interesting sign up. It's a bit of a din Torah with the, uh, bit between the animals of the jungle. And, but the, I mean, the snake is never without an answer. And as the Gemara says, the snake says, what are you looking at me for? Go to, go to people who speak Lashon Hara. What do they get out of it? So the biting, if I may use the expression, Musr, comes uh, for, for about speaking Lashon Hara. But what we do see is that what, what distinguishes the snake is that it never really gets anything from, from, from the kill. And, it's, and how interesting it is, therefore, that, that the physical damage that the Egyptians afflicted is portrayed like a snake. Because it wasn't for the benefit of the kill. It was for something else. It was in order to break the Jewish people so, so that they would decline spiritually as well. So this is a major contention on the part of the Beis HaLevi. Again, to be aware of these two elements and to understand that in a sense, the, the Gashmias element, the physical oppression, was a shell, was a casing for, for spiritual assault. And the Beis HaLevi takes this one stage further. It's really a, a classic um, discussion. And that is that we can now understand how the hardening of Pyro's heart worked. It's very interesting. Whenever we discuss this question, the hardening of Pyro's heart, so us from the outside looking in at Pyro, so, so everything is well understood. Why is he saying no the whole time? Because his heart has been hardened. But how does Pyro understand his own actions? Does he have no idea what he's saying, what he's saying? Does he surprise himself each time by saying no? He can't explain why he's doing it, but he has no choice. Pyro also has his own way of looking at things, whereby in that mindset, he's perfectly reasonable and perfectly, perfectly rational. How so? Because Pyro does not publicize his spiritual campaign against the Jewish people. He makes it all about the political threat, and he's looking to physically subjugate them. But the Pneumius, the Inyan, as the Gemara said, is to get them to, to spiritually disintegrate. He never says it, but that's what it's all about. So, so when Moshe comes <coughs> to Pyro and says to him, I'm only asking for one small thing, which should not be a problem for you. And that is, please allow the Jewish people a three-day break. For what? For a spiritual holiday. For spiritual revitalization. That shouldn't be an issue. They'll come back working better than ever. That was the request. And says the Beis Halevi, through that, Paro's heart was hardened. Why? Because Paro hears that request and says, this is Moshe, he's meant to be representing an all-knowing God who clearly has no idea why I'm doing this. Because if he did, 
he'd know that my primary objective is to get them to spiritually collapse. So the last thing that I would agree to is a three-day spiritual revival. So the fact that it's being presented to me, says Paro, as, as something that I would naturally agree to, means that whoever Moshe is representing doesn't really know what's happening. And if he says he does, it's, it's a bluff. And if I'm only tenacious enough and persistent enough and go the distance, I will somehow beat him. So in a sense, Paro, his downfall was really his own lie coming back at him. Because he never told anyone and never publicized the spiritual element was, was the ichor, it was allowed to be the vehicle through which his heart was hardened uh, by giving him to understand that Hashem had no knowledge, really, of what his primary objective was. So um, this is the, the uh, thesis of the Beis HaLevi, certainly the questions that it raises, as well as the sources that it brings and the direction that he takes, well worthy of our consideration. I'd like to move from here <coughs> to Moshe Rabbeinu himself. And as we know, Moshe um, is sent to redeem the Jewish people. We mentioned before, he's not the first leader that they have. Aaron preceded him, but Moshe supersedes. And in Perak Dalad Pasuk Kafbeis is where I would like to begin because it will open up. It's a turn of phrase. It will open up for us a, a major topic here. Perak Dalad Pasuk Kafbeis. So this is the message or of the initial messages that Moshe is to give to Paro. My, my um, Yisrael are my son, they're my firstborn, and uh, with, with everything that that means, I demand that you let them go. What's significant for us, interestingly, at this juncture, is not so much the message, but the medium. That is to say, the way that the message is introduced is with the words, Ko Amar Hashem. This is the first time someone is told something in Hashem's name, and it's done in classic style. Ko Amar Hashem. We're familiar with this. Why is this so noteworthy? Because the Sifrei, in the end of Chumash Bamidbar, will make a point of telling us <coughs> that actually, whereas normal or generally Nevi'im will introduce their prophecies with Ko'amar Hashem, and what is more prophetic than the opening Ko'amar Hashem, Matzachein Bamidbar, Ko'amar Hashem, Bechulei, Kol Nishma, and so on and so forth. But Moshe has a unique opening, and that is the word Zeh Hadavar. This is the matter, Zeh Hadavar. That is how Parshas Matos begins. And Rashi cites the Sifrei, and specifically what the Sifrei says is that all of the other prophets introduce their prophecy with Ko'amar Hashem, and Moshe also sometimes uses Ko'amar Hashem on occasion. But then, he, but then he has this unique signature where he says, Zeh Hadavar. What we need to understand 
is what is the difference between Koamar Hashem and Zehadavar? Koamar Hashem translates as so says Hashem. Zehadavar means this is the matter. What is the difference between them? And why does one of them represent the unique prophecy of Moshe Rabbeinu? And here there is a major discussion among the Rishonim and the Acharonim. The Mizrahi, there in Parshas Matos, and this is the approach also of the Abarbanel in a number of places, is quite fascinating. And, the, and explains that the, what, what is distinct about the prophecy of Moshe is that when other prophets receive Nevuah, they receive a message. And it's very clear to them what they are meant to then say. But the formulation of the message is done by the Navi. In other words, what they receive is the concept with full impact and profundity. But the formulation, the Nusach, is then provided by the Navi. And it's for this reason, and this would seem to be supported by the Gemara and Sanhedrin and Petes, I believe, which says that no two Nevi'im, even if they were to be received the same Nevuah, no two Nevi'im would say it in exactly the same way. Because each Navi is different. And it's for this very reason that each Navi is chosen. Because Hashem wants the message to be formulated the way that Navi will formulate it. It is moreover for this reason (coughs) that there are such exacting moral standards and character standards that are demanded before a person is allowed to attain nevuah. Because if he is not absolutely on level in moral terms, he cannot fully be entrusted with a nevuah message to formulate it in a correct and faithful way. And that's why, as the Gemara says, he has to be humble, he has to be wise, and, and all these things. He has to have his, as Rambam expands further, he needs to have his, his uh, drives under control so that he will absolutely be faithful to formulating the message as he received it. It is for this reason, and it's very, it's very easy to hear this many times and never, never raise the question. In the bracha before the Haftarah, on Shabbos morning. The Baruch HaBarach Torah, anytime, actually, begins, Baruch HaTashem, Asher Bachar B'Nevi'im Tovim V'Ratzah B'Divrehem Anemarim Be'emes, as we know. And what does that mean? Hashem chooses good Nevi'im, and He desires their words, which are said in truth. Now, if we don't think about this further, the bracha is very difficult. But if we understand that what is Nevi'u, Hashem says to the Navi, say the following. So the Navi goes and says the following. And Hashem hears it and says, I like it. Well, of course you like it. I mean, you said it. It came from you. He's just, he's just saying your message. Of course you like it. So why do we say, Hashem, Hashem desires the words of the Navim. They're his words. But according to the Abarbanel and, and, and the Mizrahi, no. What the bracha means to say is Hashem does not give word for word to the Navi. And that's specifically why he chooses 
Nivi'im tovim. Good prophets. What defines good? Good people. Impeccable in, 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 in moral terms. Why? Because by choosing good prophets, Hashem desires their words, which are said in truth. They are truthful to the message. They're faithful to the message. And the way that they, that, that, that they, they put it into words, Hashem hears that and says, I'm very happy with that. That's a good Navi. Very interesting to consider this, this approach to Navua. And moreover, as the Rebbe Shur Diskin uh, famously discusses in another context, if you, once we understand how Navua works in this way, that it's projected, so to speak, onto the, onto the soul of the Navi, who then needs to put it into words to the best of his ability, which needs to be good. It's possible to understand one of the most baffling episodes in the entire Torah, and that is Parshas Balak in Chumash Bamidbar, where Balak enlists Bilam to curse the Jewish people, and Bilam goes, confident that he will be able to do that. The problem is, it's very clear, Bilam states this, and he really means this. He knows that he cannot do what Hashem does not allow him to do. He cannot go if Hashem doesn't let him go. He's very emphatic on that. And, and he's actually, he, it, it, he believes it. So when Hashem says the first time, you can't go, he doesn't go until Hashem says yes. But when Hashem says you can go, but only to, to bless the Jewish people, so Bilam goes. But, but with what in mind? He's been told explicitly that he can only bless the Jewish people. And he knows that he can't do what Hashem doesn't want him to do. So with what in mind does he go? Intending to bless the Jewish people? But the Maral Diskin says, no. Bilam understands how Nevuah works. Nevuah is projected onto the soul of the Navi. Bilam has been promoted to prophet status for purposes of the Jewish people. Project Nevuah onto his soul. You don't want to hear what that looks like in words. In other words, <coughs> Bilam has supreme confidence in the corrupt nature of his spiritual makeup, so that whatever will be projected onto it will come out in a negative light. In Lahabdil, there are some people who can do that even without prophecy. You can tell them something positive, they'll say it back to you as, as if you said something negative. And it's... it's it's a, it's, it can be done. And if you're Bilam, if prophecy goes through your, your spiritual system, and someone like Bilam, whose spiritual system is the moral equivalent of a sewage system, so then Bilam says, bring on the blessings. By the time I've, I've processed them, you, you wouldn't want to wish those things on your worst enemy. But that's exactly what I intend to do. So this is really a fascinating window into... What Bilam is thinking, he knows how Navua works. Of course, the great uh, surprise and, and disappointment for Bilam, as the Pasuk says, when he comes to, he's ready to receive, the Pasuk says, Vayasem Hashem Dovra Befi Bilam. Meaning, Hashem put words into Bilam's mouth. What does that mean? He gave him a script. Read here. Much to Bilam's disappointment. This isn't going through my system? No. This cannot be entrusted to go through your system. So what my message for the Jewish people 
I want you to say it verbatim, and Bilam has no choice. By then, it is too late. So this is how Nevuah generally works. And each episode now has its own uh, uh, understanding. But it's for this reason that a Navi normally will introduce his prophecy with the words, Ko'amar Hashem. Ko'amar Hashem means like this, meaning thus. And what it means is, this is, this is the, the, the idea, absolute clarity, but it's not word for word, because he never received the words. The words are his. He's a good Navi, and therefore he produces the words faithfully. That's called Ko'amar Hashem, thus, thusly. The exception is Moshe, who introduces his nevuah coming back to, to that Rashi with the words Zehadavar, the only one who is able to intuit and align himself so absolutely with the way Hashem himself would say the words, even if he was giving him a, a, a text, is Moshe. And therefore, Moshe, the, the level that is known famously in Chazal as Aspaklari Hameira, the absolute crystal clear lens, whereby when he receives the message, he knows exactly how Hashem would say it. And that's how he says it. So what, is, so what then does he say? Zehadavar. These are the words. These are the words that Hashem said. So that is one way of understanding the difference between them. Just for purposes of contrast, because in, in, the, in the interest of fullness of discussion, or breadth of discussion, uh, not everyone agrees with the, with the Abarbanel in terms of how other Nevi'im receive their Nevu'ah. The Malbim and the Netziv are quite adamant in their understanding that even a Navi receives, receives uh, the words themselves. Okay, what about all the matters that we discussed? They will need to be rediscussed. But what about uh, the difference now between a Navi and Moshe? If a Navi receives the words and Moshe receives the words, so why does an other Nevi'im say, Ko Amar Hashem, and Moshe says, Zehadavar? Says the Nitziv, the reason is very simple. Because a Navi can only receive Nevuah when he's asleep or in a trance. Bachalom adaberbo. Only when he's asleep is his soul loosened, so to speak, from his physical body and then available to receive the Nevuah transmission. The uniqueness of Moshe, as the Pasuk says, Hashem speak to Moshe like a person would speak to his friend. Meaning Moshe is the only Navi who is fully awake at the time when, he's, when he is receiving Nevuah. So, Zehadavar, you always say when you're in the presence of something. The concept of Zeh, like we say, on Seder night, and we point. The Matzah and Moro, HaChodesh HaZeh, it's, uh, Hashem was pointing at the moon. Uh, that's how it should look like. So Zehadavar, only Moshe can say Zehadavar because only Moshe is in the presence of Nevuah when he's actually speaking. For the other Nevi'im, they received it. But now that they've woken up, they can tell you exactly what they heard. But they're not in the presence of Hashem's word anymore. Because that's when they, that was before when they were asleep. Now, they're awake. So these are very interesting explanations as to the difference between Kamar Hashem and Zehadavar. The question that remains for us, and this is the reason why we talk about this in Parshas Shemos, is because, as we mentioned, 
Moshe does have his unique introduction to Nevoah, Zehadavar, but he also on occasion uses the introduction Koamar Hashem. For example, in the Pasuk that we just quoted in our Parsha, Perik Dalet, Pasuk Kafbeis, and moreover, throughout the Parshas of, of uh, Shemos, Va'era, and Bo, Moshe will be using the introductory phrase of Koamar Hashem. Koamar Hashem, Shalach Hami V'Avduni, Koamar Hashem, Kachatzos Halayla. It's all over the place. And our question is, if Moshe is unique and has his unique introduction of Zehadavar, so why does he ever use the, the, the introduction that the other Nevi'im use of Koamar Hashem? That's an interesting question. Unique is unique. And the Mizrahi gives a very uh, straightforward answer to this question. It, 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 maybe it's a Chiddush. And that is, says the Mizrahi, Moshe was unique among the prophets. But he didn't start out that way. He started out like other prophets. At a certain point, he then took off and graduated to a status that no other prophet would take. But it wasn't the, the case from the very beginning. It's a very interesting answer. And for this reason, says, says the Mizrahi, in the early days, with these early uh, Nevuahs, you will find Moshe in, in prophesied with Karmar Hashem. Because at that stage, he is like other Nevi'im. But then he takes off. Then he graduates to his unique Madriga of Nevoah. And when does that happen? Not surprisingly, at Matan Torah. And what is the unique Nevoah of Moshe for, if not for the unique mission of transmitting the Torah? Why else does, he, does his Nevoah need to be unique? If he's just, quote-unquote, speaking about the things that other Nevi'im speak about, why does he need to be different in, in his level of prophecy? Because there's something about his message which is Tired Mitzvahs, that, that, that only Moshe has. So, so therefore, for the benefit of the unique transmission of Tariag, Moshe has a unique level. But initially, he's, he is a Navi uh, like other Nevi'im and accordingly introduces his Nevu with Koamar Hashem. Wow. Therefore, says the Mizrahi, all through Shemos Ba'erabo, Koamar Hashem, don't be surprised. But from the time he says Zehadavar, there's no looking back. However, there is one question that is raised on the Mizrahi, and it's truly uh, fascinating to see just how closely the Mepharshim track the words of the Mizrahi. Rabbeinu Eliyahu Mizrahi, who's in the 1500s, the preeminent commentator on Rashi. As far as we're concerned, the Torah has its commentary called Rashi. We then discover that there's a commentator on Rashi called the Mizrahi, and there are at least a couple of dozen works which are dedicated to the Mizrahi's commentary. They're almost like uh, uh, Rashi's grandchildren in the base Hamedrash. They are commentary on commentary on commentary on the Torah. We see how each uh, statement of the Mizrahi, it's tested and pondered and challenged and defended. It's a literature. Mizrahi himself is a literature. Quite, quite something. And therefore, 
he, he comes under challenge. Why? Because the Mizrahi has told us, although Moshe begins initially, we'll use the term Koamar Hashem, like Athenavim, but from the time that he moves into Zeradavar, he will never go back to Koamar Hashem. But as the Mephorshim point out, there seems to be one time that he did. When do we assume that Moshe has moved to Zeradavar? Around about Matan Torah time. In fact, he uses the word Zeradavar even earlier in Parshas Beshalach, when instructing the Jewish people how to collect the man. Zehadavar Ashetziva Hashem. So that is really now the transitional point. From this point on, we're in Zehadavar. You can expect never to see the words Koamar Hashem come out of Moshe's mouth again. But what are we to do when we hear that they do? Where is this? In Parshas Kisisa, by the Chet Egel. Perik Lamed Beis, Shmos Perik Lamed Beis, Pasuk Kaf Zayin. Moshe has come down, he's seen the people worshipping the eagle, he breaks the luchos, he says, Mi Lashem Eli, who comes to him? B'nei Levi. And then, Perik Lamed Beis, Pasuk Kaf Zayin, Vayomer Lahem, Moshe says to them, Ko Amar Hashem Elokei Yisrael, so says Hashem. Gird your swords and go and dispense justice with those who were actively involved in the Avodah Zorah of the Egil. Koamar Hashem. But it's late, it's late in the game. Because Moshe's already moved to Zahadavar. How then would the Mizrahi explain that he, 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 we still find him using on this occasion Koamar Hashem? So there is a very interesting, I would say it's a very nice quote-unquote uh, answer that is given, a very, and, and, and that is that the Jewish people fell from grace at the time of the Egel. That we know. Moshe was demoted. Hashem says to him, Lech raid, go down, which the Gemara explains, Rashi quotes, raid migdulasacha, if the Jewish people are not on the level that's expected of them, so you don't have uh, the level that's expected of you, or you're not, you're not entitled to that level. Now that is said with regards to Moshe's greatness. Perhaps it's true with regards to his level of prophecy also. Maybe Moshe regressed to Koamar Hashem at that time because the Jewish people had regressed to, to a state of Avodah Zorah. That's a very interesting uh, answer to this question. But I believe that the answer uh, may be simpler still. And it's actually based on Rashi in that Pasuk. In Parshas Kisisa. Again, Moshe calls Mila Shem Eli, B'nei Levi rally round, and he says to them a message from Hashem Ko Amar Hashem, you need to take your swords and dispense justice among those who, who, who worship Avodah Zorah. Rashi has a classic comment on the words Ko Amar Hashem, so says Hashem, says Rashi, Vehechan Amar. Where did Hashem say this? <clears throat> and the answer is, That's the Michilta. So Kisiso is after Mishpatim. So, so there you go. In case you're wondering, where did Hashem say that? The answer is, He said it earlier on in Parshas Mishpatim. Seemingly, 
the Rashi is very difficult. Moshe is a Novi. And when a Novi says, Koamar Hashem, the people are meant to receive the message and say, okay, we receive the message. Since when do you ever have a prophet introducing his prophecy with Karmar Hashem and someone says, well, well, when did he say that? Because presumably the answer is right now or recently. I mean, what is a prophecy? You can't hold up every prophet when he says, so says Hashem and say, when? Now. Or just presently. Or just before. Presumably, if he's a prophet. And all of a sudden, Moshe says, Karmar Hashem, and Rashi says, well, well, where did he say that? And, and we have to find a pasuk, and we have to find... That's not how prophetic messages go. Each one is self-contained. It doesn't have to be a quotation from an earlier message. I believe the reason why Rashi here is looking for the source of Moshe's message at the time of the Egel is because if it was a normal prophetic message from Moshe, Moshe by this stage is introducing his prophecies with Zeh Davar. This is it. So why is he going back to Karmar Hashem? Moshe doesn't introduce prophecies with Karmar Hashem, but that's why Rashi says Karmar Hashem here isn't introducing a prophecy. It's citing an earlier halacha. So said Hashem. When? In Parshas Mishpatim. Okay. It's, in other words, because it's an anomalous introduction now for Moshe, it's no longer the way he introduces prophecy. That's why Rashi understands he is in fact not introducing prophecy. He is citing an earlier posik from Mishpatim. So we're entitled to ask where, and then Rashi fills in what the answer is. So these are some very uh, interesting questions. Again, it begins with, with the phrases, the, the precision, Zehadavar, Koamar Hashem. What's the difference between them? Which one does Moshe use? And when? And why? And what if? And, 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 and Kedarka Shel Torah, the, the more closely we track these, uh, these words and phrases and concepts, the more we will uh, emerge Baruch Gadol from, uh, from the Parsha. I'd just like to close our discussion this evening by referring to, to what one could call the beginning of Moshe, or the beginning of Moshe's uh, path to greatness, if, if one may use such an oversimplifying <clears throat> terminology, or presumptuous uh, terminology. And that is in Perik Beis, Pasuk Yud Aleph. It's Shlishi. Um, so in those days, Moshe um, grows up or becomes great. Vayitzei goes out to his brothers. Vayar besivlosam. And he, he saw their suffering. And then it says, Vayarish Mitzri, he gets involved in this whole thing. The, the Egyptian, he's hitting the Hebrew. And that's how it all begins. But the very beginning of the words, Vayar besivlosam. And from that, everything flows. From that, Everything emerges. Vayar besivlosam. His brothers are in distress and he sees it. Why is this so significant? After all, it's plain to see. What's the great gedula of seeing? But the answer is, as we know, 
many times it's very easy not to see. Especially if you're Moshe. <clears throat> if you're Moshe, you can stay in the palace. If you're Moshe, you can take an alternative route, which is more scenic and doesn't have suffering Jews in the way. And even if there is no alternative route, it's still possible not to see it. Because you can stay in your carriage, or keep your head down, or keep your head up, or look past them, or see through them. And these are things that are easy to do. And certainly for quote-unquote nobility. And the Pasuk says, but Moshe didn't do that. He saw it. He took note of what was around him, and he saw it. And once he saw it, once he took note, he took action. And <clears throat> what this means is, as we know, very often it's easy that there, there is a cause, it's there, there's a need, it's there, there's a, uh, some problem, but it's easy not to see it. From a certain point of view, the greatest thing we can do is yes to see it because it's, it's human nature as good people that once we see it, we'll for sure get involved. When people see some, allow themselves to see something, they do get involved. And sometimes there's no getting rid of them once they've gotten involved. They're all over it. But five minutes ago, they couldn't see it because the major breakthrough is not to decide whether to act. If you see, you act. So the major breakthrough is, is to decide whether to see. This really is, is the lesson that emerges from Moshe. That, that we are the product of the things we do. But the things we do are a product of the things we see. But the things we see are a product of what we choose to see. And that's where it all begins. And I think there's room to say here, Zahurlatov, <coughs> That this, in a sense, at least to a certain degree, is part of the legacy of Batya, of, of the one who drew, drew Moshe out of the water. And as much as, of course, again, for us, that's how the story begins. She sees, and but the easiest thing in the world, I mean, what, she's, she's a daughter of royalty. She didn't go there to save Jewish children. She went there to bathe in the Nile. She has an entourage. She has a schedule. She has a, a way of doing things. And now you have this uh, basket, which is, which is flowing down the river. And she notices it. But wouldn't it be easy to unnotice it? Because isn't it inconvenient to notice it? Think of all the problems it will raise now. And, and what makes it even more easier is, is that many of the things, they don't go away even if, you, even if you stop noticing them. But this will, it will literally flow down the river. It will literally go downstream. So as long as you just keep yourself busy enough for the next two or three minutes, it will be out of sight and if it's never happened. And Batya says no. Something is there and I will not let it flow out of sight. I will intervene. I will take action. There's, there's, a, there's a concern here. There's an issue here. I can ignore it, but I don't wish to ignore it. Because I can do something. And from that comes Moshe Rabbeinu.
And that is his name. Min And as many Mephorshim point out, the Sephorno and others, in giving Moshe that name, Batyo is really conferring that message to him. As if to say, I drew you out when I could have just let you float by. And, and there's so many things in life that you will see. That, and, and if you want, you can let them float by. But don't do that. Because th- th- there's room to act. And, and there is what to do as soon as you allow yourself to see them. And in a sense, how, how, how the polar opposite is Moshe. And again, but, uh, by extension, uh, Batya as well. The polar opposite from Paro. How does, how does the Parsha begin? The Parsha begins with a new king, Asher lo yoda es Yosef. Yosef's imprint is unavoidable. It's inescapable in terms of what he's done for the country. But you see the power of someone like Paro to not know what he doesn't wish to know. He never heard of Yosef. There's no avoiding it, but if you're Paro, it can be avoided. And what is the opposite of that? Things that are so easy to ignore, but if you're Moshe, you don't ignore. That's the difference between the Paros of the world and Lahavdil Elif Havdolos, the Moshes of the world. And even though uh, Moshe is light years away from us in terms of level, but even things that are light years away can still give a certain sense of direction as to which way we'd like to be headed. So, so we, we take our cue as much as we can for Moshe, there is, as long as there is Sable in the world, because there's a lot we can do if we only see, and then we do, as Baruch Hashem, we are uh, witness to, again, in these, in these uh, recent weeks and, and uh, now months, even. But to see, see the power of what can be done when people see. And the Jewish people do see. In the schus of everything that we see, which then leads us to take action, we should be zochet to see all the things that we are waiting to see.